episode of MicroConf on Air. I am your host, Rob Wallen. Every Wednesday, we live stream for 30 minutes and we cover topics relating to building and growing startups that are ambitious but fit within the goals of having a real life, not burning yourself out, finding freedom, purpose, and relationships. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. I have a great guest coming up today. We're going to be digging into customer success, or customer support, customer service, customer experience. Um, all things that uh, you know you really should be thinking about uh, as a startup founder. Before I do that, a couple housekeeping items. Um, if you miss any episodes of MicroConf on Air, they're always available on our pod in our podcast feed as audio. So go to any podcatcher, type in MicroConf on Air, and you should find us in all our glory. And thank you, as always, to Basecamp and Stripe, our headline supporters, headline partners for this year. So today, Sarah Hatter and I are discussing customer support and experience. Uh, the title for this one is Adjusting the Customer Experience Journey While Inside of a Glass Case of Emotion. Sarah Hatter is, I know that's, that's a mouthful. Sarah Hatter is the founder of CoSupport, a customer support coaching, training, and hiring consultancy. She's a two-time MicroConf speaker, and she produces Elevate CX, although not, not at the moment, much like MicroConf, but she will, I'm assuming once the pandemic dies down, and uh, that's a, a three times a year conference for customer support pros and product managers. Sarah Hatter, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. This is fun. This is a nice reunion for me to get back in the microconf land because your conferences always overlap with ours in, in the spring. So I think the only times I've ever been able to attend is when I'm actually speaking, um, which is unfortunate because right. it's a fantastic, fantastic conference. I'm um, glad you. to see that you're doing more outside of the in-person event realm. Uh, it's a it's a hard adjustment, but it's it's nice to kind of uh, keep the vibe going, right? Year round. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We you know we already had it in our our um, roadmap to do a bunch of on, more online, more digital stuff, releasing the library of all of our videos and uh, doing some you know live streams and setting up a Slack channel that was already in the works. And then when the pandemic hit, we just said, all right, let's let's scoot it all up. How how has it um uh, you know, I'm curious, aside from I'm, Elevate CX has obviously, you've postponed it or put it on hold for the year. How else have you been impacted? Well, you know, we were in the same place as you. We've been doing events since 2012, um, three, sometimes four times a year in three countries, you know, cities all over the place. We travel with it, it moves with us. Um, so we had already really been kicking around this idea of I'm getting old. I can't handle like the travel incessantly, especially like overseas trips. You know, I was I was doing like six, seven trips to Europe a year. It's crazy. Um, mm -hmm. And it was one of those things where it's like when you have a good idea, you really like to think about it and plan on it. We started planning for, um, you know, shifting digitally, I think like last summer. And now we're having to do it very, very quickly. So mm -hmm. I, I think it kind of kicks me back to that sort of bootstrappy mentality of, you know, be scrappy, be quick and figure things mm -hmm. out as you go, uh, which is also yeah. for a lot of people, how they start out in customer support. It brings me all the way back to like my beginnings in tech when I had no idea what I was doing and I was just seeing what worked. So in a way it's great you know in in a way it kind of gives everybody a rest especially those of us who who travel and consult and have to be on the road all the time it's it's been a nice nice uh <laughs> time to stay home and you know whatever mm -hmm. but uh but yeah it's it's just it's definitely an adjustment we're just trying to figure out what's next you know yep, yep. i'm just I glad that i didn't are. get trapped somewhere because i was like 
literally came home from London a month before I had been in Australia. And so I'm just very, very, very happy that I was able to get home and get to my own drawer of pajamas before the yep. lockdown happened, yep. you know? Out, yep, out there in Northern California. Cool. We already yeah. have a couple uh, audience questions, um, but first I want to okay. just ask you, I want to ask you two quick ones. I mean, we may, we may not get to the whole, was it the glass case of emotion thing if, if we get enough yeah. questions because people are, <laughs> they're really That's interested Xander's in this topic. Title. Xander came up with that title I, and it's, I think so. it's another reason why he is the best at his job. It's hilarious to me. Thanks yeah. for this, Xander. <laughs> so my first question for you, Sarah, is, I looked at your, I went to your Twitter account. You have an amazing Twitter handle, SH, two letter yeah. Twitter handle, which is so cool. Yeah. But based on your Twitter profile pic, I'm wondering what the significance is of Burger King in your life. Cause you literally have a picture so, of yourself standing in front of a I Burger do. King. Um, when I was growing up, I grew up in a very, very small town in Northern California in El Dorado County. We had one fast food restaurant and it was a Burger King. And if you're, if you grew up in a small town, go, being able to go to a fast food place was like, that was amazing. Right. Mm, um, yep. and so when I started traveling the world, it just kind of became this jokey thing that every time I would be in a foreign country and there would be a uh, Burger King, right. I would send a picture to my friends and family, like, look, I'm at a Burger King. And um, I think that picture, that's my profile pic now was something like my 27th picture of a foreign Burger King. <laughs> it's become a thing, uh, you know, it's just kind of become a thing. To the point where like you were asking me before these Lord of the Rings commemorative Burger King glasses were right. actually gifted to me for Christmas because it combines my two great loves in life. I can't tell mm -hmm. you the last time I actually ate at a Burger King but uh you know it's it's <laughs> it's, a it's thing. good to have tradition it's good to have inside yeah. jokes and tradition right? yeah, yeah. And, and now it's becoming like people are noticing it about me i'm starting to become like you're not the first person who's asked me what's with the burger king mm -hmm. picture but no, i don't know it's it works very prominent awesome well let's dig into some uh some customer conversation here. So we have a question. I have some questions that I have carved out, but I wanted to start taking some listener questions first because I think we just had our third one roll in. So first question is okay. from Colin Gray. He says, we're wrestling with response times and commitment to them right now. We're a small team with one dedicated support person and then developers pick up the slack when we get overwhelmed. So he has several questions. So I'm gonna ask him one at a time. What's a reasonable okay. response time to aim for? How much are people paying you? That's the question. Um, right. If they're if they're paying you more than let's say twenty four dollars a month, you owe them a twelve hour window. Definitely. If they're paying more than that, we're looking around two three hours. Um, if you're one of those people who has an autoresponder that says we strive to get back to everybody in forty eight hours, take that out immediately. Don't say that. Um, you don't have to put out there unless you have like a definitive SLA with people. You don't have to put out there your time frame. You can just say that we're going to get back to you, you know, as soon as we can. And make sure that you have an autoresponder that leads people to a knowledge base to maybe answer their own questions. Make sure that if you cannot get to tickets within that window, that you're sending that first touch email out. That's, you know, you can send it in bulk. Make sure it looks really personal. It doesn't look like a robot wrote it and said, we're trying our best. And then of course, we're gonna move on to this question, I'm sure is like in the next point that you're gonna make, but you really have to be careful about triaging the emails that you're getting to first, right? Obviously bug reports, obviously downtime, obviously billing disputes, whatever it is, 
those are the things you really want to take a first pass at. Um, anything else that seems low priority, if it's a feature request or if it's maybe a pre-sales question and you can you can put it off, that's where that first touch email is really going to come in handy because it's a personalized email that's not an autoresponder. You're giving people some context about your day, about what their expectations should be, and you're buying yourself a little bit more time to, to get a real response in. So when you say it's personalized, are you literally ty like typing it out and sending it yourself or is it triggered automatically? No, the trigger automatically is one that everyone should do anyway, that autoresponder, um, whatever help desk you're using, all of them have it. Um, make sure, like I said, that it sounds, you know, it's not one of those, we re received your requests kind of like template email right. that I think is like out of the box. Personalize yeah. it a little, point people to the knowledge base, point them to onboarding material that you have. It, again, that's another part of like buying time is that it's leading people to education that might answer the question while they're waiting for you. Um, but the first touch email is really something that is like support 101 when the inbox is stacking up. If you've had downtime and you see emails just start pouring in all at the same thing, it's a way of acknowledging, hey, we know, we see it, we get it, we'll be back with you. And it gives people like an opportunity to say, okay, what is our real time frame for getting back to these people? What are they all asking? Triaging through your inbox, are they all the same? What's priority here? And then uh, replying as fast as you can to those once you've sent the first touch out. I think people are used to seeing the autoresponder, but it's more of like an acknowledgement that your email was received. So sending the mm -hmm. first touch a few hours later is more of just a, I'm gonna try to get back to you as soon as I can. I just wanna let you know it's gonna be a little bit delayed. And that's okay. Right. That puts some humanity in front of in front of whoever it is requesting this. It's not mm -hmm. just a triggered email and it's not a canned reply. Um, if it needs to be a canned reply, if you're looking at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tickets that are just sitting there waiting for someone to get to them, uh, make sure it's really, really well written and that it's really personal and that it's, you know, a little bit friendly and casual and funny. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so then I think you already answered his next two questions because he basically said, you know, what's the first question was, what's a reasonable response time? And then his next two questions are, do you communicate that to your customers? And if so, how? And, and you say no. Right? I don't think you need to. I think it sets yourself up for a lot of anxiety and it certainly sets customers up for a lot of anxiety. If you're if you're going to promise them, I'm going to get back to you in two hours. I mean, the point of all of this really is to surprise and delight. We know that, right? That yeah. sort of age old saying. But what we don't want to do is also the opposite of that, where we're leading people into bad expectations. Like, I'm not even going to hear from you for three days. I'm not even going to get to you. That's immediately going to trigger them to go to social media. It's immediately going to trigger them to try and reach out other ways. If you say email takes two days to get back to you or whatever it is. I think we're starting to see, I mean, part of the reason we're having this conversation is because emotions are heightened for everyone across the board right now, whether it's customers or developers or even people working in CX, we all have kind of amped up a little bit um, our expectations of people and, you know, maybe some of the anger and rage that we're projecting onto them too. You don't want to find, like, you don't want to create reasons for people to be even more irritated with you. They're already writing you a support email. That's already a point of failure. So just try to ease it, ease it in there a lot, a lot more. If you have an SLA with your customers, if you're doing enterprise level or you know huge contractual software obligations to them, then that's a little bit different because maybe they already know that they're going to hear back from you in 12 hours. But I just say, you know, as soon as we can, we're specifically talking about the inboxes 
blowing up right now. So we're modifying a little bit of our language and our little bit of our behaviors here. But I think we're removing all anticipation of when they're gonna hear from you is gonna settle them a little bit. It's gonna buy you some time, ease things up. And then when you are able to get back to them within that two or three hour window, or maybe by the end of the day, it's gonna really, uh, really surprise them. Cool. Our next question is from Mason Hensley. He said, can you describe custom tools slash functionality teams have built that make customer support flows easier? For example, an easy button to extend a trial, CRM syncing, having the lifetime value in, you know, in your CRM or your support system. You have any others off the top of your head that, that you've seen built that really help your, your support team? Yes, I think that there's there's a few help desks out there that allow you to trigger follow-ups with customers. Um, mm -hmm. I know Zendesk does it, I believe Help Scout does it. And these aren't necessarily things that teams have built, but they're they're things you could replicate very easily if you're not using a help desk. We forget to follow up a lot with customers. Happy customers, um, you know, new trial customers who convert, people who we save from churn, or even angry customers who are, we just, you know, have a tense, tense interaction with, we forget that those are very important people in one or two weeks to follow up with and to see how they're doing. The first thing we want to do is put them in the archive and never think about them again, right? But a better response to it is to be responsive, even when we don't want to be, make sure that they're okay that they figured things out do they need any more help because if especially if there's someone who you've had to escalate or there's someone who was really angry about a situation most likely they're not going to want to reach out to you either so i think it's a really good way to you know again turn prevention is always on top of mind for a lot of people especially those escalated tickets um but it's something that just puts forward again i'm going to say it that word again your humanity the fact that you really care about your customers and you really think about them and you really want to be a part of their customer journey. So you can trigger that on anything where someone has complained about something, a billing dispute perhaps, or they've had an issue or a bug that you had to fix for them that went back and forth. I think it's a really strong idea to just set those triggers to be reminded to follow up with people. Um, it's, it's really rare to see it in when it happens live. I mean, I'm sure, I don't know if as a customer you've had that ever happened to you where you've had an issue and then a while later you get a personal email saying how are things going that isn't like salesy mm -hmm. or automated you know or it's mm -hmm. not like some sort of like a drip process it's like a real personal email um it just i think shows the, the attention and that's what a lot of people want as customers they really want really good sharp attention from you know people who are creating the products they're buying right yeah very cool um, all right, next question from, uh, from Forrest. What's the best way for support teams? Actually, if, if you're in MicroConf Connect and you have questions, please feel free to keep them coming. Um, I feel like Sarah could do this all day, um, even though we'll I stop. Could. <laughs> I mean, I know, I, I don't think. To. You can also hit me on Twitter. I'm, I'm happy to talk about this stuff. It's really, as they say, my wheelhouse. Sarah has forgotten more about customer experience than I will ever know. Let's just put it that way. So, um, <laughs> If you if you do have if you want to have questions, uh, you know if you want to ask questions in, in the microconf on air, you need to be in microconf connect. You head to microconfconnect.com. You apply. You get into our Slack channel. We have about uh, more than a thousand people in there right now. A thousand founders and aspiring founders. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. It's a great group of folks, highly moderated, and uh, that's where these questions are coming from. So Forrest asks, what's the best way for support teams to measure the customer experience for improvement purposes? Well, everyone's going to tell you you know, uh, customer satisfaction and, you know, thumbs up, smiley face. 
I think a lot of that is bullshit. A lot of that is emotional responses to a singular incident that somebody had. Once again, you know, we talk about the idea of customer support. What is it? If someone has to write me an email about whatever it may be, I don't understand a product. You're billing me too much. I'd rather have this feature. This thing doesn't work. Those are all points of failure. So judging how people think about you or your product or whether they're going to continue to be customers based on a smiley face is, you know, a little bit of an archaic way to come up, come about this stuff. I think uh, a better way to do it is really seeing how they respond to things like onboarding campaigns, seeing how they respond to other educational opportunities, whether you're doing online classes or courses or office hours, whatever it is, are people interested in that? People's interest and in their engagement with what you put forward really shows a lot about how they value your product. Um, I think feature requests, the things people are asking you to build for them is a really important indicator of how likely they are to continue to use your product because they're looking for ways for it to become more sticky for them. They're looking for ways to invest more time, probably more money. And so they're not throwaway emails or things that you just say, you know, no, sorry, get out of here. Go find another product that does that for you. That's the very easy response, but the hard response is to say, what value does this have to the future of this customer and the product, right? Another thing too, is if you are having good communication, open communication channels with your customers, really start to look at the, the language that they're using when they write you or chat with you or hit you up on social media. Look at the words they use. Is it more weighted on positivity about your product? Is it more weighted on curiosity about your product? Is it more weighted when people are writing you support emails? Are they raging with, you know, maniacal anger because this weird feature set is just not working right for them? So those are all like more experimental things, but there's opportunities in, in all of that to really read between the lines about how customers are viewing your product and what their engagement level is. KPIs are great, but they don't tell the whole story. Statistics should be the, should be the baseline of what our customers are actually doing and thinking. And all of us, I think, MicroConf is so great at educating people on tools for things like churn prevention, right? And drip campaigns. And there's so many tools that you can use. But unless you're getting down back into who are these people who are buying my product and using my product and what are they saying about it and thinking about it and feeling about it, then you don't have a full story there. I also think that triggering customer interviews and case studies is like the top of mind thing that you should be doing, especially if you are building a company that's in that one to four year mark, you should have monthly interviews with customers like constantly, constantly, constantly. If you have one customer that you interviewed four years ago, you should be going back to them every year and saying, what has changed? What do you think about it? What do you feel about this? And the other thing to remember too, is that you're not going to save customer relationships and, their, and the way that they think about your product by doing a redesign every year. You're not going to save their emotions towards your product by changing a color scheme or a typeface or moving a hamburger menu. None of that really matters. What matters is the communication that you have with them, the language that they're using and what they're telling you. And if you don't have those open communication lines, if you're not seeking them out, they're not going to be telling you stuff. Yeah, it always bothered me. I worked at a few companies where they wanted to boil everything down to numbers only where it's like NPS and response time hours and thumbs up, <laughs> yeah, you know, no. all the stuff. And what you're, no. what you're saying is, yeah, that's where you start. That's your baseline, but it be is. a human it about it, be. right? 
And you have to think about like, how would I measure? I mean, Rob, you know this, you're married to a psychologist. How would you measure the health of a relationship year after year after year or month after a month, if, especially if it's a new relationship or a new friendship? You've got to start thinking and putting that humanity into how you think about your customers. The other thing too, is I think a really valuable KPI, if you want to get into that is customer effort score. How hard is it for them to learn this product? How hard is it for them to make it sticky? How hard is it for them to get deeper into the product where they're more invested and can't leave it? That's our goal. Um, those, those sort of things, you know, looking at your customer support inbox, is it, is it an entire page worth of emails that how do I do something that seems really obvious to your development team? That's a problem. That's something to look into. So customer effort score, there's a lot of um, plugins and opportunities out there in the world. Just Google it. You'll find you'll find stuff you can use for that. Cool. And just quickly before I go to the next question, um, I have used at Drip, we used Help Scout and then we got acquired yeah. and we switched to Zendesk. And I liked yeah. Help Scout personally because it was simple and it felt very like one-to-one. -one. Zendesk wasn't terrible. It was, certainly was not as bad as like the generation of, of customer support stuff that came before it that I had seen. Are those your, like right. if someone were to say, hey, I'm just getting started today. One, you know, we're two people, three people working. It, what, what is your go-to for like early stage? And then where do you kind of recommend people migrate up to when they, if they outgrow it? Yeah, I don't think anybody on listening to this should be using Zendesk. Sorry, I love Zendesk, yeah. but it's an enterprise level it's software beefy. and yeah. it's built on the marketplace. It's built on, you got to buy this edition and this edition and this edition, and you got to have a sales manager and you can't upgrade to this until you talk to your sales manager. And there's people's whole lives out there in enterprise land where that's their job is tool set yep. to talk to the sales manager. That's not you. So I think right now, Help Scout is probably the best one. It has a great integrated um, uh, marketplace as well. It's, you know, all the stuff you need and it's none of that bulk. It doesn't distract you. I know founders, I'm a founder myself, and I know we get very distracted with new ideas that come along that we can add to this integration and all this kind of stuff. And what you really need to focus on right now is the emails coming in and the emails going out. That's about it. So until you get to that place, I usually tell people like, if you're getting 100 or less support emails a day across all categories, stick to the smallest, smallest opportunity. For some people that might be a shared Gmail inbox, which is easy to hack, easy to completely easy to use for a team that size, even, you know, shared, like I said. Um, Help Scout is probably the next best option if you're ready to like move on to an actual, you know, reportable, integratable help desk. But Zendesk is like, you've got, 10 plus agents churning through a thousand tickets a day. It's just not necessary. Great product for what it is. It's completely revolutionized how enterprise large scale legacy brands do customer support, but it's just not necessary for startups or growth stage companies at all. Very cool. Uh, next question comes from Rafi Banks and he says, what are the most difficult challenges when it comes to customer experience for SaaS companies? Are they specific to onboarding, product training, getting feedback, et cetera? Thank you, Robin, Robin, Sarah. I love these names. Um, I, yeah, I think the one that I see the most, the people that the companies that we consult with are usually startups, growth stage companies, less than 20 employees. Mm -hmm. That's our, that's what we do. We set up processes for those, those types of companies. Most of them are coming off a season of their founders doing customer support. We were all taught that in 2009, that your founder should do support. It's bullshit, it's a terrible idea. I can tell you why, but we don't have that much time. 
I think it's just emotionally and spiritually very draining for people who are invested in building a product that is like their money, their time, all that stuff to then take on the burden of people nitpicking it and requesting things. And this is broken and go fix it. All There's too much uh, baggage for a founder to be doing really great support. So what we find is that they, when we come in at that point, we're like, well, let's build a new process. Let's hire you someone, or maybe we'll handle it for you for a while. There's such negativity around the inbox. They have such baggage about what's in there that they can't see clearly the opportunities that I talked about before, where you can really gather so much valuable insight from what people are saying, how they're asking it, where they live, what time of day are they using your product and sending you a support email? This is like really important stuff. So they've spent a year, two years building a product and doing support for this thing and haven't looked at any of that stuff, right? Those are the things that if you're starting out now, you really need to get a handle on, you know, the idea of a founder doing support isn't just to save money, it's to get insight into what customers are doing, but you can't really do that very well if you're too emotionally triggered by it, right? That glass case of emotion again, if it's just too much for you. So that's the number one thing. The other thing that I see all the time people are doing is they're just throwing someone in that role an intern or a cousin, or they have a part-time office manager who sometimes does support for them. Those things are really dangerous because it's putting value. You're telling everybody from the get-go, you're telling your customers the value that you see in their customer experience. Some of the most important conversations that you'll get for product or from development is gonna come from people paying you money than sending you a support email. And if you think that those conversations are have no or little value that you're just willing to throw it in front of someone untrained to maybe get get it closed. That's a really weak way of looking at, you know, what customer experience should be. We all talk about customer experience is the most important thing. Customer support is the most important. We, you know, customer driven growth. And then we pay someone $15 an hour to do support part time. These things aren't compatible thinking. It's that's not how we really have to invest in this invest in process, invest in language, invest in a knowledge base, invest in onboarding, just like you would, you know, hire a junior designer to build an app for you for a hundred grand a year. It's, I'm not saying you necessarily have to start paying someone hundred grand a year for support, but you really need to think about it beyond, beyond what that baseline is out there. The trend out there, you know, to just throw whoever wants to do support into support really devalues the kind of support that you're offering people. So yeah, that's it. I, I can rant about this all day, obviously. Gosh, I didn't realize people did that. I, see, I've never viewed it that oh, way. Yeah. I always viewed it as you this know? as this customer contact point that was just so, that had to be done really well, you know? It not does. I would never throw like a random person at if it. If you're you know? thinking about, if you're thinking about selling, if you're thinking about acquisition, you've got to think about the value add. One of the first things you're going to look at is your customer experience. You're going to, they're going to look at your support emails. They're going to look at who's doing it. They're going to look at what you've invested there. People forget about yeah. that. They think it's all code and it's all design, but it's really a whole journey that they have to look at. So right. it's something that you need to be investing in just as much as you do other areas of your company. Yeah. I, so my rule of thumb for when I would start up a new, cause I've done this over and over and over launching new apps. It was, I would do support for about 90 days. And during that time I would be trying to figure out what are, I mean, this is when it was like one or two people. Right. And I'd be trying yeah. to figure out 
who, who's the best person to, to, to hire to slot this? Um, you know, what are the FAQs so that I can, frequent last questions so that I can give them to the next person and kind of train them up. But after about two or three months, you're right, the emotional toll, it was, it was noticeable on me, you know, because they're nitpicking, yeah. they're nitpicking, they're making requests, but they're nitpicking my baby. You but know, to you, it, yeah, brain. it feels like nothing's good enough for these people, yeah. right? Like you've spent all, Definitely you know, you're is. sacrificing time with your family. You're putting your own money yeah. into this. It's very hard to have that, that on you, the pressure of building a company on you and still take a reasonable customer feature request seriously without getting like, you know, crazy about it. So. All right, sorry, I have someone screaming in the hall next to me. I have three kids <laughs> and uh, something's going sideways. So anyways, I was distracted for a minute. Uh, Pablo has a question. All over. Yep. Pablo has a question. Do status pages help with non-technical users to communicate downtime integrated service? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, what the question is non-technical users or what read the question yeah. again today? Do I have? It says do, do status pages help with non-technical oh. users to communicate downtime integrated service? Yes. Uh, status pages should be updated daily. Um, if you can automate that because you have no issues, that's fine. But keep in mind that status pages are not just for, uh, is Twitter down, right? <laughs> it's for things like we added this new feature. You might have to change your login today because we pushed, you know, password recycling, whatever those things are that happen internally that someone might get a notification about, put that on your status page. Status page, the actual app, uh, amazing, amazing part of our Elevate community for a very long time. We love them at Atlassian. They think they make the best product for this. It's easy out of the box. Anyone can do it. Um, you do not have, I'm just going to say this again. You do not have to build your own thing. It's already there. Don't invest the time. Just use something like status page. I think more than you realize if someone has a problem with something more than you realize users and customers are now Googling things. They're Googling the error they get. They're Googling this weird thing that happened. They're looking for an answer there. They're not gonna go to your knowledge base and they're not gonna look up your onboarding email that you sent that explained this exact predicament to them. They're gonna go to Google. And so if you have a page that is top of mind that has errors on it or it has your status or whatever they're looking for, it's going to be um, a good opportunity to reassure that customer, but also eliminate or defer that potential support email coming in. So I think they're very, very useful if you are not having issues, if you have all clear, all green, and someone stumbles upon your status page or it's something that's prominent in your app that people are clicking, make sure that you're also using it for app updates. Um, if you even want to get quirky about it and start putting, you know, tip of the days on your status page, it's being seen. It could be seen by someone. So might as well use the real estate, right? Indeed. Awesome. Well, we are at time. There's Rafi Banks had another question, but Rafi, you can hit her up on Twitter. You can hit Sarah up. She's at SH. If you want to find out more about what she does day to day, that's at cosupport.com. Sarah Hatter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Awesome to see you again. So coming up uh, on May 20th, next Wednesday, same time, same place, uh, we will have Val Geisler talking about uh, the talk she had planned for MicroConf Starter before we cancel, had to cancel it. So she's going to be talking about how performing onboarding email audits can help with customer retention. See you then.